KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org. Welcome back to another edition of listener-supported KPBS Cinema Junkie podcast. I'm Beth Accomando. Black History Month, and Cinema Junkie is devoting this podcast to looking at black comics and black horror. I have to confess, I was a little concerned about calling the episode Scary Black Folks in case people interpreted that the wrong way. But the title actually comes from professor and comic book artist John Jennings, who created a collective called Scary Black Folks. There is something that is um, inherently scary about how blackness has been constructed. And so We just kind of like to put it out there. And to put it out there in a provocative way. The name assumes additional meaning now, as black filmmakers like Jordan Peele, with films such as Get Out and Us, have smartly taken control of those images of race and reconstructed them in new terms of their own making to give a whole new meaning to the notion of scary black folks. I'd also like to take this opportunity to recommend the Shudder original documentary, Horror Noir. It explores black horror on film, and it's something worth seeking out after listening to this podcast. We've always loved horror. It's just that horror hasn't always loved us. Black people play a particular role in horror films. First, we weren't in it. We were played by white people. Yeah. We went from maids to pimps and hoes. If there was somebody black, they would be the first to die. (laughs) You can also check out the book of the same name by Robin R. Means Coleman that inspired the documentary. But to start the podcast, I talk with black comics creator Keith and Jones of Kid Comics. For the second year in a row, he's organizing Black Comics Day in San Diego at the Malcolm X Library. The event takes place February 16th and focuses on black comic book artists and creators and black images in comics. Last year, the show came just as Black Panther was about to score big at the box office. This year, Black Comics Day arrives as Black Panther scores a notable first as the first comic book movie to garner an Oscar nomination for Best Picture. Plus, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse got a surprising but well-deserved nomination for Best Animated Film. This past year was a strong one for African Americans both behind the camera and on screen with films such as If Beale Street Could Talk, Sorry to Bother You, and Blind Spotting garnering acclaim, along with the box office hit of Black Panther. Since Keithan is a comic book creator, I began by asking him his thoughts about Black Panther and Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. First of all, I love both films, and I think they work on different levels. Congratulations to everyone involved with Black Panther and the nomination. Well-deserved. I would say Spider-Verse was was probably my favorite film of last year. I had not left a theater feeling like that since, wow, since maybe Star Wars or Indiana Jones or something like that. You know, it left, I left on a high note, just feeling inspired, not just as an artist, but just as a person. Like I really, 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 Hope that film wins its Oscar also, and I hope that 
if they can duplicate what they did with the first one, I hope there's more films like that. I think it works on an emotional level where, I'll put it this way. It's a Spider-Man film, but in, I'm in comics, and Spider-Man is my favorite character. He was my favorite character growing up, and he still is. Um, but that's the first Spider-Man film where I felt that, yes, that's who he is. That's how he made me feel as a kid, and everything he represents, That's that film hit it. My name is Peter Parker. I'm pretty sure you know the rest. I saved the city, fell in love, then I saved the city again, and again, and again. Look, I'm a comic book, a serial, I did a Christmas album, and a so-so popsicle. But this isn't about me. Not anymore. And people who have not seen the film for whatever reason, you really, really are missing out. You get the original Spider-Man, Peter Parker. You get the new Spider-Man, Miles Morales, and, and all the ancillary characters. Like, And it's never felt crowded. It never felt dull. It felt like you got, you're full of each character, and it made sense. And it was just... It was so real. Like, I know it's a cartoon, but it felt, especially Mal's family, his family, it felt really real. I love you, Miles. Yeah, I know, Dad. You gotta say I love you back. Dad, are you serious? I wanna hear it. You wanna hear it? I me love say? you, Dad. You're dropping me I off at of school. I love you, Dad. Look at this place. Dad, I love you. Dad, I love you. That's a copy. Um, the voice acting was excellent. Yeah, just it was it was just a great experience. It was just a great experience, and um, I highly, highly, highly recommend people go see that film. And just to, and then as a, as an artist, I was just like, I don't know how many times times I sat in the theater and just openly said, "Dope." <laughs> just some of the stuff I was seeing visually, like, "Oh my god, who made this?" <laughs> so, um, and that's how I was when I saw Star Wars when I was a kid for the very first time. Another thing my dad surprised me with, told the story a million times, but that scroll came up a long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, and then, and I don't think I sat back in my seat for the for the for the next two hours. I remember looking around at people next to me like, "Are you seeing this?" You know, it, that was that was just magic. That's the that's the film that just got me to drawing comics and just totally wanting to find out how this stuff is done. And uh, yeah, that was the catalyst for me for sure. But anyway, I digress. Black Panther. What Black Panther achieved more than any film I thought was its cultural impact. It actually works beyond entertainment, in my opinion. It works as far as I think it changed the industry. I think it changed expectations for black films with a real budget. Because before it came out, I don't even believe Marvel knew what it was going to do as far as box office. Because there was a lot of reports about, well, it might do okay here in the States, but it won't travel. And it shattered all of that. So that, you know, that informed the studios that, hmm, there is, there, there, there is money and business to be done in the underserved communities of, of, of minorities out there in the world who are, who are hungry for well-made films. You know, people could say, well, yeah, there's black films out there and stuff. Yeah, 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 yeah. But it's always, you could, we can tell it's like, man, this is a shoestring budget, you know, or you could just tell that the studios aren't all the way behind it. There was no real machine behind it as like Black Panther had. Black Panther did. I mean, it, it, it benefited off the, it benefited off of the um, power of Marvel, for sure. 
but still, it could have flopped if they didn't put you know any real effort into it. And um, and I'm just glad that they it's, it was finally done and, and and it was done the way it was done. Um, and I hope that moving forward, we we can get past all of the first stuff. Like Wonder Woman was another film. Like people were like, eh. I was like, what is taking so long with Wonder Woman? Did he really think people aren't going to go watch a good, a well-made Wonder Woman? And so here we are, you know, and both of, both of those films, which had question marks on them, are now like major successes, and we're all waiting for the sequels now. So I I hope moving forward, now that we've now that all of this stuff has been proven, you know, we can get past the whole first oh the first of its kind and the first of this you know first of that and the first of this and just get into the zone of of let's just now start judging these films as films, not as black films or or um, quote-unquote women's movement films and things of that nature. Let's get, to the, let's get to the art of it, you know? And I see that happening now because you're starting to see, it's becoming normal to see um, directors of color, women directing films and I'm not talking about little arts art films a little side project I'm talking about made studios giving the green light to these people for major properties and so that's a great thing I have to say I was really upset that the academy did not nominate Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse for screenplay because I thought that was a brilliant script yes. and Michael B Jordan for supporting actor for Black Panther I mean how they could have passed oh, he wasn't both nominated? those up no I was so angry <laughs> I'm okay with it. I mean, I'm surprised. I'm honestly surprised Black Panther got the nod for Oscar. I didn't see it. I didn't see that coming. I thought it was a great film, but you know, it wasn't on my radar as far as oh yeah, that's gonna be an Oscar film because it's 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 the first superhero film <laughs> to to reach that level. Like wow, what a superhero film! And I and, and I and I believe that the Academy Award wants to show that they've turned a new leaf. Also, like they want to show that yeah, we're diverse. We don't have a problem with um, of, of nominating these type of films or whatnot. So um, that's great and all. But like I said, moving forward, um, the black community. I, I want to put this out there: the black community is not looking for handouts. What we're looking for is fair treatment, a fair shake. If it's a five mile race. That, let everyone start at, at Mal 1, you know, and, and we'll see who wins. If we're still going to have to be dealing with, well, you can enter the race, but you can only wear one shoe. <laughs> that's what the struggle is. That's what the whole struggle is about. Something has to change. I mean, someone has to, someone has to, with power, has to force this change because otherwise it's not going to happen. It's like the civil rights movement. It's like, People who, you know, you got people out in the world who actually think that once the slaves were freed, the, 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 the battle was over. Are you kidding? Have you, heard of, have you heard of Jim Crow? That was another battle, you know. Not, on, not, not only that, the whole, the whole reason that the black community, and I can only speak for the black community because I'm black, but the whole reason that the large parts of the black community is in destitute situations it's because when the slaves were freed, they were they were literally just freed and literally left there with nothing to support themselves. So in essence, they were forced to go back into go back to work for their quote unquote masters, or take their chances out in the world with very, with no education, no funding whatsoever. So it's like um, 
there's a byproduct to all of that. And, and that's basically where we are now. We're still like climbing out of that mess. And it's like two steps forward, one step back, two steps forward, one step back. So it's a process. We'll get there because you can't stop change. You know, you can try to get in the way, but you're in, you're going to end up getting run over because that's what history has shown. Like no one's stopping change. No one. (laughs) Now we've talked about comic book movies in the past, and I just wanted you to talk a little bit about the difference between Black Panther and Spider-Man in terms of Black Panther serves up an African character as your superhero and Spider-Man Miles is an African-American kid. (laughs) And for you, the fact that Black Panther was an African character versus African-American made a difference for you as a kid. So uh, talk a little bit about the the difference between those two. Yeah, but Killmonger represented the African-American. Yeah. And and you heard there was a lot of buzz after people started filming that they they identified identified with Killmonger, Mm -hmm. at least as far as what he was complaining about. What do you want? I want the throne. <laughs> hey, you, the tuna. <laughs> Y'all sitting up here comfortable. Must feel good. It's about two billion people all over the world that looks like us, but their lives are a lot harder. Wakanda has the tools to liberate them all. And what tools are those? Vibranium. Your weapons. Our weapons will not be used to wage war on the world. It is not our way to be judge, jury, and executioner for people who are not our own. Not your own. But didn't life start right here on this continent? So ain't all people your people? I am not king of all people. I am king of Wakanda. And it is my responsibility to make sure our people are safe and that vibranium does not fall into the hands of a person like you. Son, we have entertained the charlatan for too long. Reject his request. Oh, I ain't requesting nothing. Ask who I am. You're Eric Stevens, an American black operative, a mercenary nicknamed Killmonger. That's who you are. That's not my name, princess. Ask me, King. No. Ask me. It was a far more interesting character, yeah, it's, too. It's, because it is different. I believe it's enough. I thought that was the point that people might may have missed in that film, how how great that was about about that movie was. T'Challa, he represents what we aspire to be. He had both parents. He had he knew who he was. He knew his own language. He knew where he was born. He knew his culture. Therefore, his viewpoint on the world was through a was a more um confident positive outlook I am not ready to be without you a man who has not prepared his children for his own death has failed as a father have I ever failed you never tell me how to best protect Wakanda I want to be a great king, Baba. Just like you. You're going to struggle. So you need to surround yourself with people you trust. You're a good man. With a good heart. And it's hard for a good man to be king. He didn't, you know, he was not necessarily worried about the strife that 
the blacks in the diaspora were going through here in America. You, you know, they our stories is although we share the same skin color and the same same heritage, we're still different because we're still we're 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 Americans. We we grew up here in America. We have American taste. We have Amer we you know we have American values, but we're not necessarily. We came from a place where we weren't necessarily treated like Americans, even though this is our home. So we we're dealing with a lot of baggage that T'Challa for them, you know, that I think obviously Africa has its problems, too. But the African-American owns nothing. There's nothing to fight on but what was handed down to us. And that's where we get into a lot of trouble because we get distracted by that. The whole barrels, um, crabs in a bucket mentalities is what the black Americans are constantly dealing with, where we have a sector, we have a, we have a part of us, a group of us who want to move on with our lives and be prosperous and be productive citizens. But then we have our, um, we have the group that's very disenfranchised and very angry. You have people in different stages of their lives. You know, some people, you have black people who just can't deal with the whole, um, um, the whole um, grind of living in America and they either completely erase, run away from what they are and who they are and try to assimilate to the point where they don't even want to identify with being black, which, which is problematic. And then you have the pro-black Americans, uh, black, black Americans who are so far, so pro that they don't even accept their own kind if they're not, if they're quote unquote not black enough, that causes problems. And then you have like, you know, I would say people like myself who understand the struggle, but at the same time feel that you got to compartmentalize this stuff. Like there's days that I'm angry about what's going on. And there's days where I'm not even thinking about it. I'm just living my life. But it all it all happens simultaneously, you know, and I just think some of us handle it better than others. Um, but ultimately, I think that if we don't get a financial hold in this country, we're, we're doomed to, to this cycle of just getting the short end of the stick. So to answer your point from earlier, I think a film like Black Panther represents a movement, a, a giant leap forward. Even though we don't own that character, you know, the character was created by Jack Kirby, a white guy, right? A Jewish dude. And, but still, the film itself was was directed, acted, and I believe written by a black person. So, whatever Ryan Coogler does next, um, he has he has more power at his disposal because of that film. Same with the comics industry; like there are more and more folks like David Walker, John Jennings, who are out there knocking those barriers down and and starting to build platforms where people like myself can come in and do our thing, you know, without compromise. You mentioned Killmonger's uh, character. He is African-American, but he's also the villain in Black Panther, although he's a very kind of uh, identifiable villain in the sense that, you know, we can have a lot of empathy with him for for where he's coming yeah, from. I think it was Ryan Coogler says he, he let, he'd rather call him the antagonist than, right. than the villain. Well, and I just wanted to compare that to Miles' character in Spider-Man because he is the hero in that. Yeah, and he Miles is, is just your regular kid. He just happens <laughs> to be black. 
You know, he's just a regular kid who just happens to be. He's that Spider Verse story is where we is where to me that's the goal. That's mm-hmm. where we want to. That's where we want to ultimately get to as far as storytelling, where we're not. It's not people who think that um, Spider Verse is some. It's a quote unquote. Oh, it's the Black Spider Man movie. They just you know, and that's where it ends. It's like no, not at all. Mm-hmm. You know that. Everything that Miles goes through with his family could be applied to any family that has internal problems and issues. You know, a kid going to school in another district. How many kids go through that? You know, where they're where they're the oddball out. You know, they they're trying to make new friends. They don't necessarily fit in. They want to go back to their neighborhood where it's more where they're more comfortable around the people they grew up with, and um, so on and so forth. You know, and that's why I think that that movie is so great. Anyone can watch that film and leave inspired because there's a piece, there's a piece of his story and, um, and Peter Parker who's in the film. Also, there's a piece of both of those characters you can draw from as far as how it relates to your personal life. Uh, Peter Parker being the guy, being the older, going through the midlife crisis and ready to slow down and, and give it all up. And where, where Miles is the kid that, the high school, you know, you know, wanting the wanting the the pretty wanting to have the girl and going through the issues with his dad, but his but his uncle's the cool guy and the dad represents rules and regulations and all that stuff and we all went through it. it I, I just think uh, I just I just think Spider versus more everyday struggle, whereas Black Panther is politics, mm-hmm. you know, the politics of society as a and as, as a whole. And Killmonger represents race relations. Uh, like he said, he stated in the film, like, wow, you guys have all this technology and you're just living high on the hog and you're letting your brothers suffer. Why? You know, well, why don't you, you know, it's like uh, the the Obama effect. You know, you got a lot of folks who thought that although they admire Obama, they felt that he didn't do enough for the black community. And um, that narrative is out there uh, in you know, um, although he he was not president of Black United States of America, he was president of the United States of America, and he had to be responsible for the entire country. And I'm pretty sure he was. I'm pretty sure he went to bed every night feeling that, man, how do I please everyone? You know, everyone's coming up for my neck. How do I do this? You know, I'm one man. I'm sure he went to bed every night feeling that way and thinking about those things and. And um, he did what he did, you know, like him or hate him, whatever. I, 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 I don't have any. Um, I didn't. I personally didn't have a um, problem with the man. Um, I was inspired by him. I actually didn't believe. I was. I was still pretty shocked that we had a black president because I never thought I'd see it in my lifetime. So I'm. But I'm from an older generation. So people my kids' age. My son is um, 19 now, and my daughter's. Um, she's 11. Obama really is the only president they know. And now Trump, right? So to them, there was no, oh, there was no time where there was not a black president or not a possible. It was not possible. So their their mentality is completely different from mine. It all things are possible to them. You know, there's no they don't have that baggage there. I think people who are deep into this stuff as far as the politics go. I don't. I think they miss that part. They as far as like someone like Obama represent like dude. Whether he did he did enough or not, he did he did he had a major impact. I'm sorry, I don't care what anyone says. He had a major societal impact on the psyche of this of the people on this planet. You know, especially 
millennials and younger. Like they can never say there was there was not a there was we've never had a black parent and we and we won't ever have one. They can never say that, and they can never say that they can't become uh, a president because they haven't. I mean, there it is. It's on YouTube. <laughs> I think they're a little more. That generation is a little more liberated. I do think they're a little more naive than we are. Um, speaking on millennials, I, I, I think millennials need to understand that it just doesn't happen overnight and you can't have everything you want. I'm sorry. You know, life just doesn't work that way. Well, as a comic book writer, I'm just curious, are you looking forward to any comic book movies that are on the horizon? Uh, yeah, I want to find out what happens with, after Infinity War. Like, when, <laughs> <laughs> like everyone else, I want to know what happens now. I want to see Godzilla. I love guys, and I know they're setting it up for him to fight King Kong because they made then later in the last <laughs> King Kong movie they made him super big, and I yeah. think that's so that he can fight Godzilla. But I don't know. I never understood how King Kong could King Kong can beat Godzilla. Yeah, right. <laughs> how? Uh, we'll find out, <laughs> we'll won't find we? Find out. Stay tuned. Uh, that yeah, that film and uh, there's ooh. Captain Marvel coming and a reboot of Hellboy. I don't know if those Captain are... Marvel's a film. I have to let you go first <laughs> <laughs> <coughs> because the the trailers aren't doing anything for me right now. Well, I think I think Spider Man into the Spider Verse sets the bar pretty high yeah, for, for sure. comic book movies to come. I think it re- I think that movie reminded it just reminded me of what a real film can be like, like a real entertaining the levels that you can take it to. I think we were like, I think we've lowered the bar mm-hmm. in recent times and we think that we're watching great films and we've forgotten what great films really can do to us emotionally, you know, because like you said, there's, I mean, there's some, in Spider-Verse, you really felt, I don't know if, I don't want to do spoilers on this show, but, but you when a character died, for the characters, when a yeah. character died, you were like, oh. You feel you know, a sense of loss. Yeah. 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 I was really surprised by because when I went in to see it, I didn't really, I hadn't read anything up about it or anything, and I was expecting to be entertained and I was expecting to have some dazzling animation, but I was not expecting to have to to see a film with so much heart and yeah. soul in it, and yeah, and you could, real character yeah, development, and you could just tell that these people who are, the people that worked on it, like man, they really cared about this. Like I could just see the passion on the screen behind mm-hmm. that movie. You know? Yeah. You so, come out elated from that film. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I was on, I've, you know, it, you know what? It, it, it reminded me of when I watched super, the very first super, the Richard Donner Superman. Oh, yeah. When I was a kid, I left that theater wanting to stick in my arms out <laughs> and throw a towel over around my neck. That type of feeling, you know, like Superman was Superman. He did his job as being a symbol of hope and the symbol of positivity. Positivity and you know, it wasn't a whole bunch of like the modern version where there's a whole bunch of um, action to cover up the thinness of the mm-hmm. of the story. Christopher Reeve's Superman was taking literally took a cat out of the tree and gave it to a kid, <laughs> and it was cool, you know. And he would say little stuff like um, just him saying "bye now" to yeah. the, before it takes off, you know, like that good old good old boy "bye now" or. Uh, Statistically so... speaking, flying is still the safest, yeah. Um, you know, form of transportation. Even though he just he just saved a, a, a crashing plane, you know, just stuff like that. You know, that's Superman to me. Superman's not Mister Angry Guy. Let Batman do that. That's Batman's <laughs> job. You know, he's the brooder. Well, and Christopher Reeve just was 
perfect. He was so yeah, charming was. and genuine and sincere, and you just believed him in yeah. a way that. I brought that up because last night in my bedtime viewing, because I'll put something on when I go uh-huh. to bed. I watched the making of Superman, like uh-huh. on YouTube, and it remind it brought all that emotion back and how it reminded me of how great that film was. So they just had a Fathom event where they showed it uh, in the theater, so I got to see it again on a big screen. The first Superman, the first Superman, oh, wow. the Donner one, and. It really had a quality to it that was unique, and I came out of it just feeling really good. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's yeah, yeah. And I hope, and I know people are like, "Well, I like Man of Steel and all this stuff." And I, that's fine, that's fine. But I'm telling you guys, I'm telling you, <laughs> there is another level to Superman that you're not experiencing. That's not all of like you guys are used to this whole this whole going back and forth with Marvel and DC and who's got the better films, who's got, who's the darkest, who's the most funny. Mm-hmm. That's not how you approach this stuff. That's the wrong way to approach it. You have to be true to the character. Don't try to make him what he's not. Mm-hmm. And if you do that, you're going to see that you're going to see Superman really shine. Like when they really, really do him right. Once they do that, then you'll see what we're us old heads are complaining about. So. <laughs> Well, on the high note of Spider-Man and Superman, let's end this here. But uh, I wish you the best of luck for Black Comics Day. Last year was a great success, and I I hope you can repeat that again. Thank you. Thank you. That was Keith and Jones, founder of Kid Comics and author of The Power Knights. His Black Comics Day is Saturday, February 16th at the Malcolm X Library in San Diego. One of the panelists from Black Comics Day last year was UC Riverside professor John Jennings. I also had the pleasure of listening to his insights at his Scary Black Folks panel at Horrible Imaginings Film Festival last September. I was so impressed with his presentation that I wanted to invite him on the podcast for Black History Month. I wanted to address a lot of the ideas he brought up at Horrible Imaginings, and we started by talking about the work he's been doing that led to him creating the Scary Black Folks Collective. Well, um, for the last, um, I don't know, probably over a decade now, uh, I've been working on speculative fiction pieces, particularly graphic novels and art shows, um, uh, black speculative art, uh, black speculative cultural production. Uh, A lot of people just call it Afrofuturism as a kind of uh, an overview of, um, you know, just kind of black speculative narratives. But really we're talking about um, Afrocentric narratives that deal in, like, fantasy, uh, horror, science fiction, magical realism that are kind of... uh, you know, being broadly discussed as Afrofuturism, you know, and the term actually was, you know, kind of coined in the early 90s, but there's been a, a, a resurgence of interest in black sci-fi or like speculative fiction from an Afrocentric perspective, not just in our country, but globally. And um, what's been really interesting is that there's been like a really big push from the academy and people who do crit- criticism um, that I think kind of coincided with probably like the, the right now the zenith of the interest has been like Black Panther. You know, the 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 Marvel movie is a is a really prime example of what stylistically and, and narratively what people have been calling Afrofuturism. And you know, one of the things that I started thinking about, though, along with my friend Stanford Carpenter, who is a cultural anthropologist who studies comics, is you know, do you do you couch everything that Black people are doing that is speculative under this umbrella of Afrofuturism? And if so, do you discount you know, stuff like genre tropes, for instance, 
you know. So, for instance, uh, one of the things I was, uh, one of my claims to fame, so to speak, is I was the artist on the Kindred uh, adaptation of Octavia Butler's Kindred graphic novel. And if you look at Kindred, you know, a lot of people say, oh, that's Afrofuturist. I'm like, well, it actually has the tropes of something that would actually be something more like the Gothic, a Gothic horror. You know, it's about a, a black woman in the 1970s who was transported inexplicably back to Maryland during, like, slavery time. And this happens to her quite a bit. And so there's this no, as soon as you realize that's happening, you know, that becomes a horror story. <laughs> and so you're like, well, do you, there's a disruption or a tension between the chronopolitics of, say, a future, you know, and, and uh, an Afro future, and then just kind of dealing with the past. And so, I mean, Stanford and I came up with this, uh, uh, this term called the ethnogothic, where we're looking at like, well, you have to unpack these terrors, these mostly racialized terrors that plague us and unpack them, and then then you can move to the future. Now, if you look at like the current politics, you know, you see that there's still like a lot of racial, like way more racial divide in the country than people would have imagined. Now, for the most part, like black people have always said that, say, like, oh yeah, that's yeah, America's a racist country. But, you know, uh, almost, you know, it's in the DNA of the country. Of course, you don't want to believe that because you live here, but it's like it's, you know, I came from, the, I was born and raised in the, in the Deep South in Mississippi. And so, you know, I know that there is these, uh, that there are these like really, really serious racial divides and that a lot of times we don't want to talk about them. And they manifest it, it manifests itself in these different ways, a lot of times in popular culture. And so that's kind of where I started going into this thing with scary black folks was like, there's a contingent of black creators, uh, primarily black creators and scholars, who started looking at constructions of race through the lens of horror. So, like me, myself, uh, Dr. Kenitra Brooks, uh, David Brame, an artist, you know, Camila Martin, and other folk, uh, like Susanna Morris, you know, who's a scholar down at Georgia Tech, just started thinking about, we've been kind of writing about this stuff and thinking about it, you know, and so that's kind of how the inklings for scary black folks as a collective, and it's very loose and it's still at its beginning. But I think that there's a lot of uh, really interesting things you can you can look at through horror and race. So those, that's kind of like the background, how we got to the point we are now. Uh, I think currently all of us are super busy, but we still want to do more things with the Scary Black Folks piece. So <laughs> that's kind of like where we are. <laughs> what made you decide to call it Scary Black Folks? Because that does kind of grab people's attention. That is the the mode that I think most people project upon the black body. You know, and when I say projection, I mean, first of all, like, you have to think about the constructions. You know, race is a construction. It's a social construction, primarily. And blackness was constructed to kind of be the foil of whiteness to a certain degree, like the shadow of it. And so everything that isn't white is bad, evil, hypersexual, savage. All the different, you know, everything that's coming from the African diaspora is dark and scary, and, you know, and... and you know, these, these types of uh, connotations around, like, how um, the black body is read as a text, so to speak, really, really changes how people react to blackness in public. So, you know, public policy and how police react to the black body. And there's so many different connotations. How black hair is demonized. Like, oh, you can't wear your hair natural because that's not professional. So, you know, there is something that is inherently scary about how blackness has been constructed. And so we just kind of, like, just put it out there. Is you know it it really does describe how people react to blackness you know as being aberrant or not as good or low even you know and not as uh, so people are like oh you you know you you see someone like Barack Obama or you see the excellence of someone like Beyonce and you think of that as being uh, you know abnormal or like 
you know, or, or, or not the norm, but I know so many people of color who are just straight up brilliant that just haven't had a chance to actually be in a space to do, to, to, to put their work out there because of the fear of, you know, black culture and black skin and black desire even, you know? And so, you know, I think that's kind of where we got the idea from. And, and so, and I teach a class on race and horror right now too at the University of California, Riverside. It's called Afrofuturism and the Visual Cultures of Horror. I'm teaching it right now. Actually, I teach three classes on Afrofuturism that I've designed since I've been here over the last, what, two and a half years or so. And one is on visual culture, one is on, just on comics, and, and, and then there's one just on horror, you know. And what we try to do is unpack a lot of things that we want to do with scary black folks is to kind of really like shine a lens on like the constructions of race and the really, really, the, the level of tension around how race is, uh, is seen. So that, that's kind of like where, we, where, where the, uh, the, the, the idea came from. Well, it also seems like it has additional meaning now because with someone like Jordan Peele doing Get Out, I mean, it's basically kind of referencing, too, that black filmmakers are kind of taking control of that genre a little more directly than they have been. And it seems like that's pointing to that as well. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I mean, so you've seen like this transition from black folk being mis- talked about in a symbolic fashion, like a, like a movie like King Kong or something like that, or even and then then this kind of like demonization of of black culture and something like White Zombie or Walk with a Zombie, and then you see this transition into these really more progressive notions of blackness and, and horror film, like stuff like Gondrin has, so like Candyman, and it starts to go into these other spaces. And yeah, Peel's movie Get Out, it just it really just outed a lot of black fears. And so I think that what I've been trying to do with my own work, too, is in the comics arena is to not simply, like, take a more known trope, like, say, a vampire. No, don't get me wrong. I love Blackula, and I love, you know, stuff like Vamp, you know, with Grace Jones. But there are, like, you know, they're African diasporic creatures and uh, and also like really really particular fears that are generated in you know uh, from what it means to be black in America that actually generate these types of fears we don't have to go that far to actually be terrified <laughs> you know and so that's 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 what I think the power of something like get out is and and his upcoming film us just looks phenomenal too because again he's saying that the enemy is also internal these ideas around you know identity politics and the, and the way that we see blackness is actually internalized too He's just doing, doing some really smart horror about the things that we talk about when we're behind closed doors. He just kind of opened the door. But we've been watching some really cool movies. I mean, you know, in that class, that we just screened Tales from the Hood. We had a really great conversation about demonization of African diasporic religions via something like, you know, Angel Heart, which is a great film, but super problematic as far as, like, how blackness is handled and, and black religions are handled, you know. And so anyway. Those are the kind of discussions that we have in that course, just to kind of open our eyes about representation and context of things, too. This past year, there seemed to be a really strong crop of films created by African-American filmmakers. And Mm -hmm. a couple of films like Sorry to Bother You and Blind Mm -hmm. Spotting, which are not overtly horror, but have, like, horrific elements in them. They have horrific elements, yeah. Yeah. Um, Just... I mean, they seemed great, not only in terms of, like, really being fresh filmmaking, but also bringing a fresh perspective to the screen. Yeah. No, I really love Sorry to Bother You. It definitely has elements of horror in it because it has body horror in it. But I would I'd almost, like, to me it falls more in uh, something like the Afro-surreal, which is also a, a mode of making that's, I think, closely connected to Afrofuturism. If you look at, like, D. Scott Miller's uh, Afro-surrealist manifesto, he does a great job of kind of, like, 
dealing with those uh, issues. I mean, and we and we had some really great conversations about the differences in, in genre and that kind of thing too. So there's this notion of like um, horror that deals with like a particular level of threat that uh, I think that Sorry to Bother You doesn't necessarily push. And it's more like using Afro-surrealist ideas to kind of like talk about these very political notions. And it's in, in some ways extremely absurd, you know, as far as it's, it's, it's comedic and absurd. It reminds me of like some of the black art, uh, black art movement writers work. The other thing about blind, in the blind spotting I haven't seen actually. There's so many, there's so many uh, stories about police uh, brutality, and um, it's really hard for me to, to watch those things. You know, because you're right, those are horrific elements, and very real horrors too. And in some ways, I think I'm more interested in like horror that is cathartic, horror that's escapist, horror that even doesn't necessarily rely upon race as a as, a, as the underlying thing. Even though it's very difficult to not talk about otherness when you're dealing with monsters, because the monster is the other. You know, let's just be real about it. It's a construction of various types of other ideas. So so I think race and other ideas around identity can easily be mapped onto the grotesque or to the monstrous. Now, when you talked about this um, ethnographic idea, mm-hmm. what mm-hmm. kind of things fall into that category? Because you talked about things like body horror and haunted spaces and mm-hmm. and hungry ghosts. So what kind of things represent that ethnographic horror for you? Well, um, let me see. That's a good question. So, uh, So for instance, like the you know, like the aforementioned Kindred is a good example, I think, of the ethnographic. Because it, it really is taking Gothic tropes, but then bending them around ideas around race. In fact, in fact, I really wanted to call it the Afro-Gothic at first, but, you know, my friend Stanford was like, well, you know, we didn't construct, we didn't create race. We, we just kind of inherited it as a uh, an aspect of our lives. So it's not really fair to say it's just going to be like about blackness. It's about race as an as a object. You know, as a, it has like these these qualities to it that are like an artifact and um, and there's stories around it as a as kind of a boundary object that kind of shifts from one space to the other so I think those are really interesting ideas around it but yeah kindred is a, is a good a good example of it something like Sankofa I think falls in that too are you familiar with that film at all I have not seen that yeah yeah so it's about it, it came out in the uh, the late 90s it's about a um, a young uh, black woman who is a like supermodel and she goes to like one of those slave castles. You know, she's doing like this uh, photo shoot. And so what happens is she she actually has like a out of body experience where these ancestral spirits like possess her body, and she time travels. It's like Kindred, and she experiences these things through like a like a possession. You know, like 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 something that would happen like a voodoo ceremony or something like that. <laughs> out of the castle like totally changed because she's actually had this real life experience but through the eyes of an ancestral connection uh, Stigmata is very similar to that too by uh, Phyllis uh, Phyllis Alicia Perry you know which is a really great book and it, she kind of like samples the idea of you know the Catholic notions of Stigmata 
but she maps it onto like ideas around matrilineal trauma in her in her um you know in the story where she's kind of like she gets the marks of the, the the slaves that are part the slave women that are part of her lineage you know that kind of thing so the, so those are some prime examples I was thinking about oh daughters of the dust even <clears throat> by um Julie Dash I think has these ideas of the gothic because the gothic necessarily like around ideas around like terror it's like this tension of like change you know the gothic is kind of a pushback against the hyper-industrialization of our lives, you know, the modernization of our lives, uh, which is why you you see things like Frankenstein and Dracula fall into those spaces, because those are really about, like, the tensions between the mechanization of, of humanity and also the ideas around um, the, these old ways of thinking that are in tension with these newer ways of thinking, you know. And uh, but when you map an intersectional reading, say, around gender and race onto those those ideas, you get some really, really interesting, um, really, really, really interesting things happening. So I would even like to posit that Henry Dumas, a lot of Henry Dumas's work falls into that range, too. And I think it's the affect that we're looking at. So, for instance, the, how is the emotional affect being applied to those stories that I think makes something kind of gothic? But really, I'm looking at the tropes, you know, like the idea of the, the, the doppelganger, like I said, body horror, haunted spaces, the same things that 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 we get, um, you know, through through the gothic found artifacts, for instance. You know, you, a lot of times gothic uh, stories will have like these fictitious artifacts that actually change someone's life. And I think in this particular case, race is that artifact. It's the thing that we find that we don't understand that actually shifts how we view the world. So it's this magical, weird thing that doesn't really exist that actually has so much weight in your life. So these are the things we're talking about. Part of what these tropes in the ethnogothic genre do is you, you talk about how it's like memory and history and the present and the self all kind of affect each other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's just this like, confluence. I mean, there's a lot of tension around, like, I mean, it's probably, you know, and a lot of it's borrowing from, you know, much more brilliant scholars than myself, you know, like someone like Du Bois, for instance, who's talking about what it means to simultaneously be American but also be black you know, the idea of the double consciousness. I mean, you almost become your own doppelganger. You're walking around split. Like, we have to carry black history and American history simultaneously in order to survive in this country. So you're never really whole. And so this idea of, like, uh, blackness being like a wound or, or like it being like a, uh, this kind of, like, precarious treasure, you know, that we, you know, that we, that we carry around with us. But then you have someone like um, Langston Hughes that talks about blackness as this ethereal thing, too. Uh, he say that, you know, black is, and it also ain't. Black is, black ain't. It's both simultaneously. I think it's the intersection of all those ideas that makes what it means to be, you know, alive and to be black in, in the space so speculative. It really is very speculative, you know, and I think that uh, it's hard to explain that feeling. Um, and I think Du Bois did it so well with the souls of black folk. And so did Fanon, France Fanon, when he talked about, like, how how blackness is constructed in um in a uh, was a white uh, black skin white mask. The fact of blackness that that's the idea of it. It's like it's this weird, very very strange construction that you inherit when you you know you're socialized into being, and it's in direct conversation with whiteness. And uh, James Baldwin said, "As long as you think you're white, I'm gonna have to be black." So he really could see through the subterfuge because he talks about constructions of blackness too. Like you know, I I don't know why you need a Negro in the first place. You know, I'm, I'm not that person, <laughs> you know, it has nothing to do with me. And so th- those are some of the things that you're, that we're kind of getting at with these narratives. Very little to do with 
how black people see themselves, more so to do with how other people see us, and then tearing away the lies around race and around how, and around quote-unquote different. So, yeah, I think that's where a lot of the horrors lie. Because once you start un- unmaking those things, like what does that say about you? You know, what does it say about the, the subject? What are some films that you might suggest to people to seek out that they might not... Because some of the films you mentioned at this panel you were at were not films that you might immediately think of as fitting into this ethnogothic category or even as... And, not, and some stuff is not even like... You probably wouldn't think of it as hard, Yeah, right? exactly. So what, yeah, what would like, you... Like, like Ease Bayou, or you know what, or like um, Ease Bayou is a great one. Because, again, we're talking about not only these external terrors, but these intra, these familiar terrors, these the terrors of the family. You know, for instance, if you look at something like um, To Sleep With Anger uh, by, um, oh, what's his name? Charles he Burnett. Charles, yeah, Burnett, exactly. Well, you're talking about like these, um, these really, really interge- intergenerational tensions, but also spatial tensions about black upward mobility and, um, you know, dealing with these, uh, these older practices. To me, I mean, to sleep with anger has similar things to Dracula because it has, you know, these notions of, you know, historical uh, magics and historical folklore and how it's pushing up against what we're looking at as black respectability politics and a modern black identity, you know. But then also, too, it's like, you know, after, as I recall, it's after the, the riots, right? So, you know, you, you're dealing with those those kind of, like, um, tragic consequences that really kind of show you that things really haven't changed that much. And that's a that's an existential dread that happens, right? Like, man, you know, I've worked all this time and still just still seem the same way. And you see that with, with someone like James Blake, the black tennis player, being, like, sprawled across his, his car, you know, in this really beautiful suit that he has on. And he's like, no, you look like the suspect. But I'm a internationally known like tennis player guy, you know. So those are the those are the things I'm talking about. Those are ter- ter- terrible things that happen. As far as like, other movies, and of course, like you said, Get Out, Death by Temptation, for instance, which is more obviously horror. We're a branch of the federal government that specializes in murder under strange circumstances. I don't believe this. I do not believe this. The supernatural could be responsible for a significant percentage of unsolved murders. Oh, you telling me now that along with criminals, we got ETs and zombies killing people, man? About a year ago, I was assigned to investigate the case of a man who had admitted himself to a psychiatric hospital claiming he had slept with the devil. He said he could feel snakes crawling around in his stomach. Get out of here. As he was about to tell me who she was, the snakes began to crawl out of his mouth. Oh, you bullshit. Of course, the hospital swept the incident under the rug, and I was assigned to do the follow-up. I followed the patient's lead and ended up at the bar. I've been watching her ever since. She leaves with men, and you never see them again. Candyman, of course, Angel Heart, definitely. I mean, some of this stuff obviously falls into a more, has the tropes of horror, but deal with race in a particular way, too. Yeah, Dead Birds is pretty cool because it's, um... It was interesting because Dead Birds is a is a horror movie. It's a kind of haunted house story that's that's set during like the Civil War. In this place, look at this. Any of this mean anything to you? You are not alone. Who's there? You are not welcome. 
not leaving. I've opened the door. Where did you put the body? So obviously it's going to have some, it should have some issues around how race is constructed. And it's funny because when people, I've read reviews of it, and, and people who review the movie totally over, they, they underplay the fact that, you know, slaves are being like sacrificed, you know, in this, this plantation to actually open up these, uh, this door to hell or whatever to, 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 re- to reactivate this man's family that he lost, you know? And I was like, wow, this is, how come no one mentions this? <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, and it's funny cause it's like a blind spot, you know? And I think that's, uh, that's something that happens a lot. This blind spot that, um, that people just don't pay attention to if you don't have to deal with it. Because at the end of the day, I mean, it's not a problem until you have to deal with it. And that's, that's, I think that's a human thing. And particularly if you're in a particular in a position of power of some kind, you know, if you don't have to deal with something, then you just don't. It's not it's not a it's not an epidemic until it's at your doorstep, so to speak. Yeah, I think that's kind of uh, that's kind of how things happen. I think one of our biggest horrors is just apathy. You know, we just don't. And I think that's a human condition. We're very tribal, and then we like to be at the top of the food chain. Octavia Butler used to say that two of her biggest fears were that man always cre- creates hierarchies, and then we always want to be at the top of the hierarchy. Yeah, and that's that's kind of like one of the biggest things. Let's see what else. the people under the stairs, obviously, because that deals so so actively with the tensions between you know uh, affluence and blackness and whiteness, and also um, how often do you see uh, a blue black boy as the protagonist in a horror movie? Hey, you shoot me and you die too, man. You better believe it. Don't be crazy now. There's no dynamite back there to blow you sky high. Not the best place to store it, in my opinion. But there it was. Just put the gun down. Put the gun down. I don't want to kill you. But I will, because I don't like you much anyway. I'm tired of fucking around. So either put the gun down now or kiss your ass goodbye, boy. That's crazy. I was like, it's such a, and it's made by Wes Craven. You know, such a, such a, such a really like, I think it's a definitive black horror movie, you know, in some ways. Stuff like Jezebel, for instance, I've never even seen Jezebel. When I look at something like The Skeleton Key, or like Jezebel, it's the opposite of Get Out, where, you know, it's this notion, both of, both of those, those those films deal with this idea of what I call, um, and I, I, don't, I don't think I made up this term, I think someone else coined it, but it's like racial transvestism, the idea that you can slip in and out of somebody's race like a suit, you know, or like a skin, you know. You know, Jezebel and also uh, the Skeleton Key uses hoodoo as the technology for, transferring a black spirit into a white body, you know, that kind of thing. I think Jezebel does it better. It's just more stylish, I think, and a lot more direct. The Skeleton Key I really enjoy, but it's, it has its issues. But those particular films, I think, deal with it a lot. Um, I've seen more representations of the ethnographic and, like, black horror, actually, in comics. You know, that's why I've been really interested, because it's harder to, it's easier to make a comic than it is to get to make a movie, I think, as far as, like, getting it out there immediately. So you have stuff like Juke Joint, by uh, T. Franklin and Aletha Martinez, where like it's using this, it's using the supernatural as a way to deal with uh, domestic abuse. Stuff like Bone Parish, which is kind of like a combination between 
a story around a supernatural story around hoodoo or you know actually hoodoo and like maybe animal kingdom or like the wire because it's like these drug this family of drug dealers in new orleans who actually are selling people's um uh, remains as powder and you can actually experience their you know their lives through this the kind of goofer dust kind of thing it's really it's really a cool story but it also deals with like you know these issues around um grief and regret and and family ties and and it's led by this really powerful kind of matriarch it's a, it's a smart comic book would be a, probably a great tv show or something like that so i think people are really pushing the boundaries now with how these particular types of technologies are being deployed you know and how they're intersecting because race functions of the technology too to borrow from beth coleman's work where it's like when you when you really get a, get away from the, the ludicrous notion that race is makes us different it does function like this extrapolation or like this prosthetic even as a, as a, it's like a, it's like this this construction that we're that we're so invested in that that relates to us that really has nothing to do with who we are as people you know um I mean, not really, but it does too. Like, like Langston Hughes says, "Black is and black ain't." You know, <laughs> so if that means so that means white is and white ain't at the same time. That's the that's the that's the underlying conceit of that. And I think that um, horror, the supernatural, the ethnogothic, the Afro surreal, all these different like terminologies, whatever you want to call them, they really are trying to get at this weird, these weird constructions around around the things that we think as different or aberrant. You know, and they make us they make us uncomfortable. They make us really uncomfortable. And so I think symbolically, when you use stuff like body horror or the idea of a ghost, you know, um, I mean, there's a reason why they say, like, oh, the specter of slavery. I don't know if you've ever heard that term, but, like, I've heard that a lot coming through the academy. Oh, the specter of slavery, for instance, you know, because it haunts the South. It haunts America, you know. And we don't want to deal with it, you know, because we, we, we've constructed, as a nation, constructed this idea around us being, like, saviors and good guys and, you know, um, you know, might is right, and all these different things, <laughs> and um, we're saving the countries, and you know, we're we're the the moral majority. You know, none of that is obviously none of that is true. You know, and especially these days. I mean, like this current administration has totally undermined any kind of credibility in those spaces. And to me, it's really like, okay, this is what black folk have been saying the whole time. But there, there you go. You know. Yeah, but like I was telling uh, a friend the other day, I said, yeah, we all live in Mississippi now. <laughs> so it's like, welcome to the South. <laughs> so, like, yep. Uh, at your panel that you did, you had, sadly, because we're on radio, we can't use a lot of visuals at all. But um, mm-hmm. one of the things that was uh, quite striking was you showed some imagery from some comics, I think, that you had done and that others had done and linked mm-hmm. them to images of... Uh, real slavery and and things that it devices that had been used on slaves. Oh and, yeah, and yeah, yeah, yeah. that was um, I mean that was really impactful seeing those kind of artistic renderings of it, like how they filtered those kind of things into these storylines and these kind of like new myths or you know new mm-hmm. variations on them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you're referring to. I think I showed stuff. Well, I showed a lot of comics, but. Uh... But I think you're preferring to Box of Bones, which is uh, yeah. the story that I created with Ayesha Jamai Everett, a really talented writer. And so that was an example of where we really wanted to create, like, what is black terror and how does it manifest itself? So, yeah, we borrowed directly from, you know, lynching photography, slave, slavery, images around slavery and bondage, and actually turned them into these these terrible machines of, of punishment. You know what I'm saying? So it's... Uh, 
Box of Bones is about this uh, this young woman, um, black queer woman from the South, actually, named Lindsay, Lindsay Ford. And she's working on a Ph.D. at UC Berkeley in, like, African-American studies and, like, folklore, that kind of thing. And so she comes across these stories around this box that she's been hearing about since her childhood that she thought that her grandmother, her grandfather was making up. But it turns out that this shadow box, this black box, this box of bones, as they call it, is throughout the diaspora. She starts to find, you know, stories about it throughout the entire diaspora. And so um, she starts to research it, and she starts to find out that it's not just a story. She's thinking that it's a manifestation of, like, black trauma, that it's a spook story, you know. But then little by little, she starts to realize this thing is real, and in some ways, she's connected to it. So it's really kind of like about, again, you know, these tensions around the past, you know, history, the memory, and the self. You know, that's it's a very, it's constructed to be, be an ethnographic comic book. And it also is, it's a, it's a real terror, you know, like one of the, one of the, the monsters that lives in the box. Because um, the idea is that the box punishes those who, who hurt black people throughout the diaspora. And it could be black people, it could be white people, whatever. You can call it and it will punish the person that has hurt you. So it's a revenge fantasy. But then it's kind of like the monkey's paw where you owe it something in order for, and, and you don't know what you owe it until the, the deed is done. So it might, take a, it might take a child, it might take your leg, it might kill you, it might, you might have to live in the box for a little bit, you know, that kind of stuff. So it just kind of picks and chooses according to what it feels like it's due for, for doing, the, doing the deed, so to speak. But all the creatures that live in the box are, um, they're based off of actual, like, uh, terrors uh, that are connected to, like, blackface minstrelsy, um, you know, the the lynching and destruction of black men, you know. Uh, um, uh, the There's one character that's so powerful that she can't even live in the box. Uh, she's called the Wailing, and she represents, like, the, the tears of, like, black mothers who lost sons to different modes of violence, you know, that kind of thing. So she's almost like a like a, a black church lady, you know, with these crazy, like, bone wings and, you know, with this church fan that she speaks with. It's a, so we just kind of, like, went off into these different tangents to really make something that was authentically black and American, but also something that was truly terrifying on different levels. Yeah. Yep. Because there's, there's, enough, there's enough in our history that we can write about that's totally terrifying. <laughs> so. Well, yeah, and that brings up kind of another aspect of the black horror ideas in that films like Rosewood or 12 Mm -hmm. Years a Slave are not Mm -hmm. what you would call traditional horror, but they are dealing with stuff that's, you know, real world horrors, like things that are happening. And and it was commonplace. Exactly. It's commonplace. I think, yeah, for Rosewood, I mean, Rosewood is, 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 is just one of many black towns that were destroyed. So people don't realize like, you know, during, you know, the red summer and other, other, you know, rashes of, 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 of black towns being destroyed, that was commonplace. So it would be, you know, white mobs of, you know, racist, angry white people who had some type of vendetta against the town, destroying an entire town, just burning it down, you know, killing people, burying them in a common grave and just moving on. And then, then probably reclaiming the land, too. That's the other thing. It's like, you know, really trying to get more property, too. Because you were seeing, like, black folk were not able to they were, you know, we weren't, you know, able to um, to settle in spaces where white people were. And so they decided, so, okay, we'll just start a black town and, you know, we'll do our thing. You stay over there, we'll stay over here. And these black towns were very prosperous, actually. They were very successful. So you look at a spot like the town that was close to Tulsa, Oklahoma, which is probably one of the most notorious, you know, where, you know, 
they bombed that black town from the sky with like bombs and stuff. It was it was a military. It's almost like a military ex- exercise, and they were common graves, and you know it was, a, it was a Holocaust, you know. And it was like six. They called it Black Wall Street because there were like six black millionaires that lived there, I think. And it was a very very prosperous black town. And basically, the same thing happens. It's like well supposedly uh, a white woman was raped by a black man and they wanted to get that dude. And they enti- and so there was just a huge riot. But back in the day, a race riot would be usually white people attacking a black town. That was how race riots used to jump off. <laughs> so, but something like, um, you know, 12 years a slave. First of all, yeah, it's horrific to just vanish. But a lot of people forget <clears throat> that Solomon Northup, after he gets back from being a slave, he lives with his daughter, I think, for like maybe eight years, and then I think that's what happens. And then he vanishes again. He totally disappears again. And it's like, we don't know where he, where he actually ended up. Maybe he got, you know, killed or, or, or stolen back into slavery. We have no idea what happened to him. That's scary. You know, that's totally terrifying. Even so after 12 years of being a slave, um, he still, he still, we still don't know where he is. We don't know where his bones are buried. And so that's the kind of terror that we're talking about, where, you know, you could be a, a black mother in Mississippi, and your 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 son could leave and not come home. You know, that was a very real terror, particularly like in the post post civil rights era when you're dealing with like something like what happened to Emmett Till, for instance. You know, these are these are real terrors that manifest themselves now in these kind of Black Lives Matter moments that are happening. You know, thank God for like video cameras and and, and the internet, right? Because these Think about that. Like, we wouldn't even be able to, to know anything about how these 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 kids are being killed, you know. And we still have young black women or women of color disappearing, you know, trans women of color that are being attacked and and and, and stolen and killed. There's a lot of uh, there's a lot of really you don't have to really go too far, <laughs> you know. And I think that's what horror noir brings up to that, that documentary, uh, the Ashley Blackwell and Tenerife do. Uh, co-produced uh, for Shutter. It's like they're saying that, yeah, you know, these are real black terrors that are that are very. They sit with you. So how do you how do you get those across to people? And that's why I think these uh, these these notions of the ethnographic or black horror or the Afro surreal or the Afro futurist, whatever you want to call it, speculations around race and horror, I think are very. There's a lot of potent conversations there that, that I think we're finally having. So because. Um, when you speculate about something like that, it distances you in a particular way, so you can actually talk about it more readily than instead of like doing a documentary about it. You can actually make a film, like a fictional piece about it that people are more at ease about. That's what that's the beauty of something like Get Out. It's like, oh, whoa, this is this is actually dealing with these particular things that I don't necessarily feel comfortable with, but I feel like they're not directly talking about it. It's kind of like when uh, what's his name? Was it Perseus that killed Medusa? Where he didn't look directly at her, he kind of looked at a reflection of her. Yeah, and he, and he was able to defeat her. That's how it is. I mean, film and other places they give us a space where we can deposit our fears comfortably without having to deal with these things so readily. So, yep. <laughs> well, I mean, that's one thing that's always fascinated me about pop culture and especially genre films like horror is it. It does seem to be looked at as entertainment, and with horror, especially, it's sometimes looked at very low entertainment, whether it is or not. But it's it you know horror doesn't always get a lot of respect, and it just seems like it's a way to bring up things that is on a certain level less confrontational than an overtly like political statement. And it, it, these pop 
culture films always seem to like be able to reach into things and, and grab them in interesting ways. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. And you know, and sometimes you can watch you can watch things very passively. Um I try to teach my students to be active watchers and consumers of, of culture, particularly being a media studies professor, that these things have meaning outside of what you think. You know, and if you're really if you're really gifted at storytelling and, and you understand that, then you can craft really powerful um narratives that I think are, are palpable and, and powerful and can change things, you know. Because really, like, you know, a lot of times people might not go and read a book in a library about these things, or they might not go to these films. But a lot of times they'll, they'll find a way to consume the the the, uh, the story. And I think, you know, race is a story. The way that we treat each other, these are like stories. And that our real power is to try to change the narrative, to dis- disrupt how these narratives have, have affected us throughout history and to kind of replace them with other ones, upgrade them, so to speak. That's one of the reasons why I don't mind remakes, you know, because <laughs> I'm like, yeah, let's see what this, we'll see what this generation can do with the same stuff, because that's how history is. Uh, it's kind of regurgitated. It's kind of cyclical. And sometimes, uh, sometimes a movie is better than a book. Nine times out of 10, it's not, but sometimes it is. And sometimes the remake is better than the original. And sometimes if you change perspective, you change a director, you change, like, the main character. People get really upset in comics about race and gender bending, for instance. So I was like, well, <clears throat> if, if, for instance, with a superhero, you know, the first, like, le- legacy character superhero was probably the Flash, you know, Barry Allen's Flash. So what we're saying is, like, instead of just updating it with, you know, the same person, you, you just update it with another, with, with just someone who's just a regular person who just happens to be a woman or just happens to be Latina. You know, that kind of thing. So, uh, I think, I'm not sure if you ended your panel with this or if it was just towards the end of it, but you had a quote from Ogden Nash about where there is a monster, there is a miracle. And yeah. you mentioned yeah. that the medium is the monster. So what do you mean by that? Well, yeah, that was a class I taught. So I taught this, this course uh, about monstrosity as a, a language or like a, a, a mode of discourse, you know? And some of these ideas come from like I said, mm-hmm. way more sm- way smarter scholars than myself, like uh, Jay Haberstrom's book, um, Skin Shows, the, and about the technology of monsters. So I'm just thinking more broadly about the fact that mo- the monstrous has existed, you know, since mankind existed. We use the monster as a as a mediation of our own fears and the um, the things that make us uncomfortable, and we give it form. And sometimes we just live with the monster, like a film like The Babadook, which I thought was brilliant. You know, I had a big fight with my students about that film because they um, they don't understand sometimes about like what fear really is, like or or how the monstrous becomes a tool for you to deal with something like guilt or like you know uh, uh, loss. You know, because yeah, one of the students was like, "Well, why is the monster living at, living with them?" I was like, "Yeah, because you never get rid of grief. You know, you never get rid of loss. You know, it, it's a really great metaphor." And they're like, "Oh, okay." But it wasn't scary. I was like, yeah, because you haven't gone, you know, obviously, you know, you haven't gone through that kind of thing. They want to be, they want to get the jump scares, you know. Um, and I think the, the the monstrous is a really great mediation for these these really darker aspects of life that we're very terrified about. This horror at the end of the day really is about our our end, us dealing with the fact that one day we will die, you know, which is one of the most terrifying things that people just kind of don't think about. But we always live with. And so it's that unwe or the, uh, the dread of that, that we can kind of manipulate as a medium. So that's what I meant by that. But, yeah, we actually had a whole class when I was at University of Buffalo that was a studio class about the monstrous. 
So I taught a class called um, Applied Semiotics. You know, basically it was just a class around symbolism and how, how graphic designers use symbols. But I would always change the theme. And so that year I taught about monstrosity. And, you know, a huge, a huge portion of that was just about demonization of female sexuality. So we looked at, you know, characters like Lilith and, you know, Succubi and, you know, Sirens and Mermaids, you know, these kinds of like weird, very, very misogynist, strange, you know, constructions of, of female sexuality that are terrifying to men, you know, and they are present in every culture, right? That's the other thing. Ghosts are in every culture. We all have monsters and dragons in every culture. So we are using it to mediate those types of fears, I think, you know. Very, very big cultural ideas around the things that affect us as people, you know, that we're just afraid to talk about. And I think one of the big monsters in our country is just like the fact that, uh, you know, we don't live in a democracy. We live in an oligarchy. You know, or that um, race is still a really, really big part of how we see each other because it's divisive and it's profitable. It really is. Demographics, we don't need demographics, you know. But, uh, you know, it's profitable. Like having divisions and segments and, you know, this stuff is actually very, very profitable to people who have way more money than us and control of the world than we do. I can't wait up on a tangent, sorry. <laughs> That's all right. But, you know, talking to you really makes me want to go back to school if I can take classes like what you're offering because they just <laughs> well, <that's good. laughs> they sound great. <laughs> well, yeah, I always, always post what we, what we talk about in my classes on my Facebook and stuff. Like tomorrow we're going to be discussing uh, Tales from the Hood, for instance. And then there's also this book called The Black Monday Murder. Black Monday Murder is one of my favorite um, comics, you know. I kind of pushed it a little bit. It has a black protagonist, and it. it's not necessarily just a, it's not about race. It's actually more about class. It's about, you know, it's about uh, wealth and, you know, greed, actually. So, but this main character who is a detective is a black character. So I was like, okay, well, I'm going to teach this because I really like this book. <laughs> so, so that's some of the stuff we're going to be talking about tomorrow. And, uh, yeah, I, I really I have the best job in the world, I think, you know, um, making these things and talking about these things on a regular basis. Yeah. Well, I want to thank you very much for taking some time to talk about them here. And uh, I know that people who went to your panel at Horrible Imaginings came away just uh, amazed by your presentation and kind of I, some people I think were really changed in terms of how they looked at stuff. Well, I hope so. You know, that's that's uh, that's good. In fact, I'm glad you mentioned that. I need to reach out to someone else who, who reached out to me about that. <laughs> so like, it's hard to keep up uh, sometimes. So. So thank you. That was John Jennings, professor of media and cultural studies at UC Riverside and founder of the still-evolving Scary Black Folks Collective. Thanks for listening to Cinema Junkie's Black History Month podcast. I also suggest checking out some archive episodes, specifically episode 58 on underappreciated black filmmakers and episode 60 with David Walker talking about black exploitation cinema. Thanks to everyone who's posted reviews and subscribed to the podcast. Your recommendations are the best way to grow the audience for the show. So please consider leaving a review on iTunes. Till our next film fix, I'm Beth Accomando, your resident cinema junkie.